2: Welcome to Hunting History, the podcast that reaches back into the past for the events that still haunt us today. Tales of true crime, mystery and the macabre. And when we're lucky, the stories were history and the people who lived it and the paranormal me. Now who doesn't love a good ghost story, right? Welcome back to Hunting History Podcast. I'm your host Kat. And I'm Haley. Um, quickly, we need to do a shout out to our newest Patreon, Megan Piviot. I don't know how to say that. That's so terrible. I'm sorry, Megan, if I butchered your last name. Your card and sticker will be in the mail this week. And, um, I just have one. Hey, yeah. From Facebook and Instagram. It's Janetta from Sarkoxi, Missouri. Sounds cold, right?
3: Yeah, anywhere other than right here is cold. Hawaii. It's not cold either.
2: You big baby. I want to apologize for last week. We had our mixer go out and uh, we don't even know how or why. So now we have four mixers, two broken ones, and two new ones. (laughs) So we should be okay for a little bit. Uh, Today we're going to go take you back about 150 years to a person that is believed to be America's first known serial killer. He was born Herman Webster Mudgett on May 16th, 1861. H.H. Holmes, who he later became known as, killed as many as a couple hundred people or as few as nine, depending on who you ask. The number varies, uh, mostly because of the way that he disposed of the bodies and his inconsistent stories and confessions. Numerous books written claiming to be true stories can claim up to 200 people that he killed, so basically no one knows for sure. Holmes himself took credit for the deaths of 27 people, but several of his victims were later to be found alive. At one point, Holmes took back an earlier confession while on the gallows, and claimed to have killed only two people. Born in New Hampshire to parents Levi and Theodate Mudgett, Herman or H. H. Holmes was a third-born child with two brothers and two sisters. His father worked as a painter and a farmer. Some claim that he showed signs of mental instability at a young age. I mean, obviously he became a murderer, so that didn't just pop up suddenly. Townspeople had said that he tortured animals and suffered abuse at the hands of a violent father. The thing is, both of those have never been proven. We believe that he was bullied, though, at one point because of his fear of doctors. Some bullies locked him in a room with a medical skeleton, and it seemed to have either cured his fear of death or helped to create his infatuation with death and cadavers. He graduated high school at the age of 16, which wasn't unusual back then. And married Clara Levering in eighteen seventy eight at the age of seventeen, having his first child Robert in eighteen eighty. Holmes, which is what I'm going to call him now, enrolled in the University of Vermont in Burlington, Vermont at age eighteen, but left after one year and This may be why now this is a story that I is written in several different places, and then other places say it didn't happen, but I'm going to report it because I found it so many different sources. It says in eighteen eighty one, Magic gained possession of a body that bore a remarkable resemblance to a fellow student. And this was kind of to tell you have you ever heard of H. H. Holmes before? Yeah. You have? Yeah. Someone said that there was a what is that show? The the really creepy show that's on now? It's seasonal. <laughs> no, I know, but it's seasonal. Like it one was hotel, one was like carnival people.
3: Oh, um, American, American Horror Horror story.
2: story. Someone said that there was a version that had an H. H. Holmes in it. I don't know if that's true. Did you ever see that?
3: I haven't seen all the seasons. So
2: Well, this is where they say that he came up with his idea of the different um scams that he would do. That he had found he had seen a body during medical school that bore a resemblance to um a fellow student who was one of his closest friends. So what they devised together was that this friend would take out an insurance policy for $1,000 and name Holmes as the...
3: Beneficiary?
2: Yeah. And it said that he was super charming and he was able to convince people of things without them realizing they were being swindled. But either way, he convinced his friend to name him as a beneficiary of the life insurance policy. And then they made a plan that they would fake his friend's death using the body that they had and then split the money, like his friend would disappear, which doesn't really make sense. They were in medical school. Is his friend just really going to walk away? I don't know. Supposedly they placed the body in the bed of his friend and then his friend disappeared. Um, there wasn't any investigation into the friend's death. They just kind of took it like, oh, he died, which is, that's not that weird at that time. And then Mudget collected the insurance and supposedly split the money with his supposed dead friend. But no one ever saw the friend ever again. So we don't know if he was just following the plan or... Is this one of the people that Holmes murdered? During this time, Mudgett sold books door-to-door, and with his charm, he was able to keep getting books without turning in any of the money from the books that he sold, and he was able to keep the booksellers at bay and pocketed all the money so that he was doing a scam. He did this insurance scam, and then he was scamming his employers, too, at this time. And then in 1882, he entered the University of Michigan's Department of Medicine and Surgery. Others who lived in the boarding house with he and Clara said that he treated Clara violently. And in 1884, before his graduation, she packed up her kid and moved back to New Hampshire. She claims to not know what happened to him after that. Like she had zero contact with him. Which I want to talk about how brave that was of a woman to do that in 1884. She must have had really strong family support for her to up and leave her husband like that and take her child. And clearly he didn't care because he'd never went after her. At the University of Michigan, he worked in the anatomy lab under Professor Herdman, who was the chief anatomy instructor. And then he apprenticed in New Hampshire under Dr. Nathan Witt, who was a noted advocate of human dissection, which obviously agreed with his, the death-obsessed Holmes Herman. At this point, he moved to New York with neither his wife or his child. And while he was there, a rumor spread that he had been seen with a little boy who later disappeared. Holmes claimed that the boy went back to his home in Massachusetts. Holmes quickly left town before anyone could investigate. He later traveled to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and got a job as a keeper at Norristown State Hospital, but quit after a few days. He later took a position at a drugstore in Philadelphia. While working there, a boy died after taking medication that was purchased from Holmes. He denied any involvement in the child's death and immediately left the city. He has a M.O. He does something or
3: suspicious and then takes off yeah
2: right before moving to chicago he changed his name to henry howard holmes this is when he definitively changed his name to avoid the possibility of being exposed by previous victims of his scams in 1886 while still married to clara under his new name of holmes he married a woman named Murda belknapp he filed for divorce from clara after being with Murda for a few weeks saying that clara cheated on him but obviously the claims could not be proven because they didn't have any contact with each other anymore. And the suit went nowhere. The divorce was never finalized. was dismissed in 1891 on the grounds of want of prosecution. Holmes had a daughter with Murda, and her name was Lucy Leo Date Holmes, who was b- born on July 4th, 1889 in Inglewood, Chicago. Holmes lived with Murda and Lucy in Willamette, Illinois, and spent most of his time in Chicago tending to business. The thing is, is both of his kids, Robert, who was born to Clara, and Lucy, who was born to Murda, um, both went on to have very productive lives. I think Robert became a CPA, and Lucy became a teacher or something. Like, they were, they weren't directly affected by him, as far as, like, the rest of their life goes. Holmes abandoned his wife and daughter and traveled the country under numerous assumed names. Like, they can't even figure out how many different names he used. Engaging in various enterprises and basically making a shit ton of money. He was scamming people everywhere that he could and was staying one step in front of the law. In 1886, Holmes arrived in Chicago and met a woman named Elizabeth S. Holton, who was the owner of a drugstore near the corner of South Wallace and West 63rd Street. Holton gave the charismatic Holmes a job. At the time, her husband was very ill and she needed help in the store. Now, there's conflicting stories about this also, that... He kind of just took over the store and was helping her because her husband was dying of cancer. Some people even went that far. Um, other people say that he worked the store with her. Either way, it was a Chicago was a busy place. A World's Fair was coming, and there were a bunch of investors in town. So it was just kind of he was in the middle of everything that he wanted to be in the middle of. He used his charm and wits to get investors to help him purchase an empty lot across the street. In 1887, he begins construction on what he says will be a mixed use of retail stores on the bottom and apartments on the second floor. And then in 1882, he added a third floor telling investors and suppliers he intended to use it as a hotel for the upcoming World's Columbian Exposition. Now, this is a thing. This is the most famous part of H.H. Holmes is this home that he built, or hotel, or apartment building, whatever he built, was called, and is still called, the Murder Castle. And this is the reason why. In the building, there were hinged walls and false partitions on the second floor. Some rooms had five doors. Others had none. There was a secret airless chamber hidden underneath floorboards and iron plated walls stifled all sound. In his own apartment, he had a trap door in the bathroom, which opened to reveal reveal a staircase, which led to a windowless cubicle. In the cubicle, there was a large chute that tunneled through through to the basement one room was la- lined with gas fixtures here he would seal his victims and in a flip of a switch in an adjacent room gas would seep into the room and then he would kill them that way so basically people say that there were hallways that like would cross other hallways and get people disoriented and then there were doorways like you would run to go get, open a door to get out and it would be a block wall like a brick wall behind it so there was all kinds of things about the actual second floor. Like he lived there and his apartment had all these weird things, but the whole second floor was kind of a maze of murder devices, like murder rooms.
3: And people stayed there?
2: People rented apartments there on the second floor. He had a jewelry store, something else down. He had different stores down on the second floor. I mean on the first floor. And then his apartment was on the second floor. And the second floor is what supposedly was. His
3: murder layer. (laughs) Right
2: they say that all the doors and some of the steps were connected to an intricate alarm system. So when everyone stepped into the hall or headed downstairs, a buzzer sounded in Holmes' bedroom. And then what he did was he fired one contractor after another, like someone would start work and then like a couple weeks in, he would fire them and hire someone else. And people say that the reason he did that was because he didn't want anyone to get like an over idea of what he was doing and what he was building. And then other people say it was because he just didn't want to pay anyone. He would claim that their work was shoddy and then kick them out and hire someone else and start fresh again where he wouldn't owe any money out. I don't know which one it is, maybe a combination of the two. And then in 1819, he met a man named Benjamin Peitzel. Now, this Benjamin Peitzel plays a big part in his life. He's his partner in crime and a lot of different scams that they do. And for the next four years, he and Peitzel commit smaller scams that don't really come under the attention of the police. Holmes went and married his third wife, still married to the other two. And he married, this is the first one that he marries under the name of H.H. Holmes. He married Georgiana Yoke on January seventeenth, 1894 in Denver, Colorado. While working with Peitzel, they say that Peitzel was under some kind of spell of Holmes. Some people describe Holmes as just being charismatic and... Charming, and then other people claim that he was more than that, like he could put people under his spell and get them to do whatever he wanted to do, and they say that Peitzel was kind of like that. he just bent over backwards and did whatever Holmes told him to do he was Peitzel was married and had four five children he had five kids, not four five children. And Holmes suggested that he take out a $10,000 insurance policy, making it payable to his wife to not be suspicious and put it payable to him. He had him open one and make his wife the beneficiary. And it made sense even back then for it to be $10,000, which is a shit ton of money in 1880s. But he had five kids. So it made sense that he would get an insurance plan for $10,000. So what he wanted to do, Holmes wanted to do was kind of repeat the scam that he'd done during college, and so that he would find a body that resembled Pitzel, and then position the body to indicate that his death resulted from like an explosion or something, making his body unrecognizable, and then Pitzel would disappear, and then they would have his 14-year-old daughter travel to Chicago and identify his body, claiming that his wife couldn't come because she had five children at home, and by sending the eldest, like a 14-year-old having to see the body, she's just... No one's gonna like force her to take a look, basically. So he's she's gonna identify his body, and then the insurance money would be paid out to his wife, who would then split it with Holmes. So they would get five thousand, he would get five thousand.
3: But how would so the wife would be in on the scam then?
2: Technically, and they did they got her to do it with her, but she objected vigorously; like she didn't want to do it. But her husband convinced her it was a great way for them to have five thousand dollars. Convinced him we have five kids. Like, we need this money. So she finally gave in, not because she agreed or because she was charmed by Holmes at all, because I don't think she was, but because her her husband was going to do it anyways. So she kind of wasn't really given a choice. During this time, though, Holmes got caught in a real estate scheme and was arrested. In jail, and this is very significant, he met a man named Marion Hedgepath, who was a train robber. I looked up his picture. He He was described as being debonair and handsome. He's a good looking guy, but he shared a cell with Holmes. They became friends and Holmes made the mistake of telling Hedgepath his plans with Pitzel, offering $500 if he would help him. And basically what he needed help with was getting a a shady lawyer to handle the insurance policy, making sure they got paid out. So he suggested or referred his friend, a lawyer named J.D. Howe of St. Louis, and said that he would help him with the scam. On July 31st, Holmes was released on bail because his third wife, Georgiana, bailed him out. And he traveled to Philadelphia where he met Petzl. He had directed Petzl, 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 to open an office and hang a sign out front that said, "Patents bought and sold, and told him to use an assume, assumed name of B.F. Perry instead of being Peitzel. A carpenter named Eugene Smith, who invented a set saw, entered this new office of Perry slash Petzl to inquire if he could market his saw. Perry, slash Peitzel, listened attentively to the description of the invention and asked him to bring a model the next day. Smith showed up the next day, and after examining it, Perry predicted heavy sales. Perry, again, Perry is Peitzel. Predicted heavy sales. A month later, Smith came back to the office to check with him on his sales and found that the office was empty. He noticed that there was a hat and coat and assumed that he had left for a moment. But when he didn't return, he left the office and came back the next day. The next day, he found the coat and hat in the same place, and it made him suspicious, so he started asking around the neighborhood to find out that Pitzel hadn't been seen since Saturday. So he decided to investigate, and he went to the second floor of the building where he found the mutilated body of Pitzel. The breast inside of his face were badly burned. Pieces of a large bottle were found near the body, lying along with a pipe and matches. The attorney, the shady attorney that... Hedgepath had recommended, stepped in and found Mrs. Pitzel to inform her that her husband was dead. So this, this is all going according to plan. He then takes the 14-year-old daughter back to Philadelphia to help identify the body, just again, like they had planned, with a letter prepared by the attorney and signed by Mrs. Pitzel, giving him power of attorney to collect the insurance money. She believes, based on the plan, that her daughter is going to identify a stranger as her husband and that he really was out somewhere alive and well. On September 21st, Howe, Alice, Holmes, and Smith, who discovered the body, called on the Philadelphia office of the insurance company. And after Smith was interrogated, the party proceeded with the insurance officials to disinter the remains. Holmes explained that he was a close friend of the Peitzel family and that Peitzel was working under the assumed name of Perry. The insurance company believes his death to be an accident, although they can't explain the smell of chloroform that emitted from the body during the autopsy. The money is paid, and Howe and Holmes go back to Mrs. Peitzel and give her the money minus a deduction of $2,800 for their cost. So now it's split in half, and then Howe takes his money, so she's left with like a fraction of the $10,000. He didn't bring Alice back with him and told Mrs. Peitzel that she is with a friend of Holmes in Kentucky who's taking care of her. She begs to be taken to her child and her husband but is told that the insurance company is suspicious and she needs to be patient and wait and the plan will unfold in time. He insists that the best for the family to be separated for a time being and asks to take the younger two children to Kentucky where Alice was. She argues and objects but she finally gives in and the reason she gives in which is really sad is she believes Holmes when Holmes tells her that the insurance agents are probably following them that they're onto the scam and that they're going to be looking for a woman with five kids. So if he takes two of her kids with him, she's only going to be a woman left with two kids. So they're not going to really find her. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So she finally agrees and lets him go. But he then tells her that she has to pay a certain amount of money um, for paperwork and advises her to go to her parents' home. So basically he takes the rest of the money from her. So she's walking away with... Nothing. Basically nothing. Nothing. He promises to reunite the family as soon as possible. And Alice really is in, is in Kentucky. And he, Holmes tells her to write a cheerful letter to her mom telling her everything is fine. So she does. But then he has Alice travel to Indianapolis where she meets up with Holmes and the two younger children. So she thinks she's meeting Holmes with her two little siblings. And that eventually they'll all be reunited. Unfortunately, he drags the children basically all over the country. He convinces Mrs. Peitzel to meet him in Detroit, claiming that he wants to reunite the family. But when she arrives, he just has two of the girls with him, and the boy is now missing. The youngest boy, Howard, is now missing. He meets with Mrs. Peitzel, leaving the girls in a hotel, and tells her that the reunion is not possible because he just suspects that they're being investigated. And little does he know it's actually true. He's being investigated. She begs for a letter from her husband so that she knows that he's okay, but he convinces her it's too dangerous
0: Amazon is an equal opportunity employer.
2: Now, here's the thing: remember the Marion Hedgepath from jail that he conv- that he tells the whole story to? Yeah, and promises him five hundred dollars. He never gave the five hundred dollars to this guy, right? He's already, he's he's a robber, like he's already a bad guy who's in prison. Mm-hmm. So he gets pissed because he didn't get his five hundred dollars. So he decides to turn informer for two reasons. First, to get revenge for not getting the money, and second, to gain goodwill of those able to assist him in getting out of jail. So on October 9th, he writes a letter to the chief of police of St. Louis and exposes the entire scheme. But there's, he didn't know that Mr. Petzel was dead. He just tells, you know, he,
3: the plan. Yeah. What he knew.
2: Detectives catch up with Holmes in Boston, and he's arrested. He was searched, and several letters, letters from the Petzl found, children were found on him. Holmes confessed that he defrauded the insurance company by swearing the body found was Peitzel's, although he knew that he had actually left the country with his three children.
3: So wait, now there's three children missing?
2: The three children that he had. He had the oldest and then he took the two youngest, which was the oldest was Alice and then Nellie and then Howard. So he says, yeah, 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 we did defraud you because Peitzel left the country and took his three kids with him. He stated that Mrs. Peitzel was party to the scam And then so she was arrested and brought to Boston. Mrs. Peitzel was subjected to severe cross-examination, but at its conclusion, the authorities were convinced that she was innocent. However, on November 19th, Mrs. Peitzel and Holmes were taken to Philadelphia as prisoner. The two children and Mrs. Yoke accompanied the party like his wife. It was June 3rd, 1895, before Holmes was brought to trial for defrauding the insurance company. He willingly pleaded guilty, saying that he knew of the scam, But he was scammed by Peitzel and Peitzel took the kids and left the country, right? So now it's been eight months since the children of the Peitzels have ever been seen, have been seen at all. Frank Geyer, a Philadelphia police detective, assigned to investigate Holmes and to find the three missing children after crisscrossing the country, following the path of Holmes and the three children, he found the decomposed bodies of the two Peitzel girls in a cellar in Toronto. Detective Geyer wrote at the time, the deeper we dug, the more horrible the order became. And when we reached the depth of three feet, we discovered what appeared to be the bone of the forearm of a human being. So then Geyer finds out that Holmes rented a house in Indianapolis too. So now the two girls are found. Their bodies are found. Then they find a house that he rented in in, in Indianapolis. And he supposedly, from what witnesses have said, visited a local pharmacy to purchase the drugs with which to kill Howard Peitzel. And a repair sharp to sharpen knives. And this is what I heard later. He took little Howard Peitzel with him to get the knife sharpened. The knives he used to chop up the body before he burned it. The boy's teeth and bits of bones were discovered in the home's chimney. And I guess he dumped pieces of the body like all over the yard of this house. Like he chopped it up in little pieces and burned it and then spread it out around. Because the thing is, is that the wood that, he, that they used in like stoves and fireplaces back then, did not get hot enough to actually burn a body completely. Following the discovery of the bodies, police in Chicago, along with reporters, decided to search the murder castle, which is what it had become known as. Holmes assumed victims were a Julia Connor and her daughter Pearl, a lady named Emmeline Sigrand, and sisters Minnie and Nanny Williams. The bodies of Julia, Emmeline, and Minnie and Nanny were never found, but all had association with Holmes and all had disappeared. Julia was allegedly Holmes' lover and Ameline was Holmes' former secretary, whom he later admittedly proposed to. While searching the hotel, authorities recovered Minnie's watch chain and Nanny's garter belt and one of the ovens. And forensic evidence was sort of like they weren't capable of that at the time, but bodies found in the basement most likely belonged to 12-year-old Pearl Connor, who supposedly he poisoned and Emmeline, police believe they found that they found pieces of her hair and body and bones. So he killed all these people. These are supposedly the only people that were killed at the murder castle. In October of 1895, Holmes was put on trial for the murder of Benjamin Peitzel and was found guilty and sentenced to death. By then, it was evident that Holmes had also murdered the Peitzel children. I mean, clearly they found their bodies. Following his conviction, Holmes confessed to 27 murders in Chicago and Indianapolis and Toronto. But the thing is, is some of the people that he confessed to killing, they later found out were still alive when they were investigating. Holmes was offered $7,500 by the Hearst newspapers in exchange for his confession, which was quickly found to be mostly just rambling. Holmes gave various contradictory accounts of his life, initially claiming his innocence, and later that he was possessed by Satan. His tendency to lie made it difficult for researchers to ascertain the truth. And while writing his confessions in prison, Holmes mentioned how drastically his facial appearance had changed since he had been in jail. He described his new, grim appearance as being gruesome and taking a satanical cast. On May 7, 1896, Holmes was hanged at the Philadelphia County Prison for the murder of Peitzel. Until the moment of his death, Holmes remained calm and amiable, showing very few signs of fear or anxiety or depression. Despite this, he asked for his coffin to be contained in cement and buried 10 feet deep because he was concerned grave robbers would now steal his body after he had done it numerous times, Holmes' neck did not snap. He instead was strangled to death, slowly twitching for 15 minutes before being pronounced dead. On New Year's Eve in 1909, Hedgepath, who had been pardoned for informing on Holmes, was shot and killed by a police officer during a holdout. On March seventh, 1914, the Chicago Tribune reported that the death of Quinlan, Quinlan Pat- Patrick Quinlan, was the assistant of H.H. H. Holmes. And nobody knows for sure, but people say that he knew about the murders of all the ladies in the castle and that he helped hide the bodies, nobody knows. But he died by suicide by taking strychnine. His body was found in his bedroom with a note that read, I couldn't sleep. Quinlan's surviving relatives claimed he had been haunted for several months and was suffering from hallucinations. The castle itself was mysteriously gutted by fire in August of 1895.
3: What's there now?
2: Where the castle was? Mm -hmm. There's a post office there but it only contains like four and a half feet of like the building and then most of... You mean of the old building? Of the old building of the murder murder castle quote unquote. Um, Most of it's on the... There's a grassy knoll in front of the post office. That's mostly where the murder castle was. In 2017, amid allegations Holmes had not actually died during his execution, people say that he was so charming and so manipulative that he convinced someone else to take his place on the gallows.
3: Okay. But how would it, how would they not? Well, that?
2: back then they would put a bag over your head, like a burlap bag over your face. Yeah. But so they're saying that someone else walked out like with their head down or whatever, they put the bag over his face and mm-hmm. then it hung this other person. So this is a lot, this is going, I mean, it was a huge, it was in the news and everything just two years ago, that it really wasn't him that died. I mean, he would be dead anyways, obviously from being born in 1861, but they're saying that he didn't actually die on the gallows that day. So his body was exhumed for testing. Due to his coffin being contained in cement, his body was found not to have decomposed normally. The cold-blooded murderer's clothing was almost perfectly preserved and his mustache was found to be intact. The body ultimately was identified as that of Bean Holmes and was then reburied. Thank you for listening to this episode of Haunting History Podcast. We love hearing from you, so be sure to follow and comment on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter at Haunting History Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to all your favorites.
3: Visit our website at HauntingHistoryPodcast.com for more information on each episode and links to our Patreon page and all our social media platforms.
2: Until next time, I'm Kat. I'm Haley. And remember, the living are far scarier than any ghost.
0: Amazon is an equal opportunity employer